All right, good morning, Plum Creek. It is great to be back in Kentucky after being out of town last week, and I know many others have been traveling over fall break as well, but I'm glad you're here today, and I'm excited for week two of this series called You Ask For It. As most of you know, this whole series was based on questions that we got from all of you. Uh, Last week, Dylan... uh, kicked off the series, got us off to a great start by dealing with some of the deepest questions in life, like, does God really exist? And if there is a God, what is He like? And if you missed that message, I encourage you to go to plumcreek.org and get caught up. I had the chance to listen to it myself, and Dylan did a terrific job. Today, though, we're going to look at some of the questions you had about the Bible. You ask things like, How do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that this book really came from God? Uh, What are the reasons we have to believe that the Bible is reliable? And you could summarize all these questions by asking, can we trust this book? Quite a few of you have either asked that question yourself or you know someone who has. In fact, this was the number one category out of all the submissions we received And I want you to know this topic is very personal to me, too. I've spent a lot of time asking tough questions about the Bible and seeking out answers, and that quest has been a huge part of my faith journey. So this morning, I do want to share some answers with you, but I also want to share some of my story, because what we're going to cover today isn't just about head knowledge, it's also about the heart. Now, to start off, I'll state my own personal convictions about the Bible, which are in agreement with Plum Creek as a church. Around here, we really believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We believe that it's completely true from start to finish. It's not a book of made-up stories and human opinions. It's actually the only objective source we have to know what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false. We do believe that God supernaturally created the universe as recorded in the book of Genesis. We believe that the miracles in the Bible actually happened. We believe that Jesus really was the Son of God, as we're told in the Gospels. We believe that He was a historical person who lived and died and then rose from the dead. In other words, the stories are true. Now, if you've been around Plum Creek for a while, you've heard me say things like this over and over again. Basically, we agree with the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, where he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's a pretty bold claim, isn't it? All Scripture is breathed out by God. So according to this verse, the Bible wasn't just written by people. Somehow it came to us from God, and it's perfect, and it's complete as it stands. And if we decide to accept the Bible's claims about itself, we could handle today's topic pretty quickly, couldn't we? Is the Bible reliable? Yes. And how do you know that? I know it because the Bible tells me so. Next question. We'd be done right there, but we know it's not really that simple, is it? Now, years ago, you, 
could find more people who were willing to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. But these days, this book is under attack. A few weeks ago, I read an article about a married couple who decided to walk away from their Christian faith. And the article was very interesting, even though it made me sad. But then I started reading down below. I was reading the comments. And these comments, um, man, I saw lots of people congratulating this couple for abandoning their faith. These commenters attacked the idea of church. They attacked the idea of, of faith in God. They said, you don't need that. And they also attacked the Bible. One of them said, and I quote, the Bible is lies made by evil humans who wanted power and control. So now I want you to imagine walking up to a person like that and saying, hey, the Bible isn't a bunch of lies. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, what do you think that'll do? Do you think that would convince this person? You probably won't change their mind that way, will you? Because even if that person is willing to consider that they might be wrong about the Bible, uh, they're going to want some evidence beyond what the Bible says about itself. Now, personally, I've had several conversations with people like that, but for me, the most significant conversations were with my friend Daryl. I met Daryl in middle school. And he went to a church that was very similar to the one that I grew up in. And we were taught to believe a lot of the same things. We had similar assumptions about the Bible. But then one day, around 10 years after we graduated high school together, Daryl gave me a call. I was already working as a minister at that time. And Daryl said, hey, Doug, I feel like I should tell you something. I don't believe in God anymore. I could still remember the shock of hearing those words. And he went on to explain where he was coming from. He said, this, this wasn't just a snap decision. He said, I, I spent years asking tough questions, and he harbored this growing doubt until finally one day he was done. He just didn't believe anymore. Of course, I wanted to know the reasons behind this decision, so we started talking. And it turns out a lot of his questioning had to do with the Bible. He had run across accusations against the reliability of Scripture. Uh, he had a long list of issues related to historical accuracy, apparent disagreements with science, apparent contradictions within the text itself, and on and on. So I went on defense. I started trying to answer his questions and trying to deal with these issues and over the next few months, we would talk on the phone, sometimes for hours at a time. And occasionally, I felt like I had some good answers. Other times, though, I didn't know what to say. I didn't have a response. After some time went by, though, it seemed like these conversations weren't really getting anywhere. I hadn't changed his mind, and he hadn't changed mine either. So we just sort of left it at that. However, that wasn't the end of it for me. I was really bothered that there were so many questions that I didn't have an answer for. And then I started thinking things like, you know, I was born into a family with Christian parents. And if I had been born into a Muslim or a Hindu family, I would most likely believe something that's very different than what I believe now. 
So how do I know all this is true? To be honest, my faith was shaken. And that was the point where I uh, sort of went on a a quest to seek out the truth. I studied world religions. I looked at belief systems that were totally different than mine. And I dove into the Bible with a new level of scrutiny. In fact, this was the primary reason that I went to seminary up at Cincinnati Christian University. I wasn't motivated by getting some diploma or a degree. I was motivated to find reasons for my faith. Now, my time at CCU was very helpful. Uh, I did learn about evidence that pointed to the the truth of Scripture, but I can't lie to you. I also had questions that no one was able to answer. I have some of those questions to this day, yet here I am. I'm a preacher, (laughs) and I stand up here on a regular basis, and I talk about how I believe that this book is true and that it really came from God. So how did I get from there to here? Well, first of all, the evidence is very helpful. Uh, There's a ton of it out there, and I'll share some of that with you today. But I also want to give you a word of caution. If you're looking for the kind of evidence that will remove any shadow of a doubt, you're not likely to find it. For one thing, you'll have to venture into academic fields where you are not an expert See, someone can make a strong case for the Bible using archaeology, geology, biology, or ancient history, but then someone else can make a case against the Bible using those same disciplines. And if you're not an expert, how can you come to a conclusion? It can be difficult. But here's something that I've come to believe very strongly. If you have to be some kind of expert to find solid reasons for faith, Well, a lot of us would be left out in the cold, wouldn't we? But according to Scripture, the gospel of Jesus is supposed to be available to everyone. So that means you don't have to be a genius, and you don't have to know everything about everything to find your way to God. You just need to be open to the possibility that God is real, and then You can let Him lead you to the evidence that connects with you, that helps you make that leap of faith. This is something that I've explained before. Evidence will get you part of the way to believing in the God of the Bible, but it usually doesn't get you all the way there. Most of us will have a few unanswered questions or doubts, maybe for the rest of our lives, but it's possible to get to the point where we say, well, I don't know what to make of this particular issue, but I've seen enough and I've learned enough to take the leap. I am choosing to trust in Jesus, that He's for real, that the Bible is true. For some of us, that final leap comes easy. For others, though, it's really difficult. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time here. I want want to go over some of the specific evidence that's been an encouragement to me, but I also want to look at what happens after you take that leap of faith. Now, it would be impossible for me to do justice to every question that you submitted on this topic, so I'm going to focus specifically on the part of the Bible called the New Testament. And many of you are aware that the Bible is actually a collection of 66 different books, And 27 of those books make up what is called the New Testament. 
And these 27 books cover some of the most important aspects of Christianity, including the life and ministry of Jesus, the history of the early church, descriptions of how Christians should live, and a look into the future where we read about the return of Christ and and what happens after this life. So back to uh, that basic question, how do we know that all of this information is reliable? How do we know that the historical Jesus matches up with the description that we have in these books? After all, some of the skeptics who doubt the Bible would say, most of this stuff is just made up. So how do we respond to that? Well, ideally, uh, we would pull out the original copies of these books and compare them to what we find in history outside the Bible. And that would be great, but I have some bad news to share here. The fact is, there are no surviving original copies of biblical books. And by that, I mean we don't have the original parchment that Matthew used to write down his gospel. We don't have the original letters that Paul wrote to the early church. And that may seem discouraging at first, but we need to understand that this is very normal in the study of ancient historical documents. Here's another fact that we should know. In most cases, There is a gap of time between the original ancient writings and the later copies that survive. And that gap can be anywhere from decades to centuries. And this is not just with the Bible, but with all kinds of old documents. Uh, The original writing is called the autograph, and the later copies of that autograph can be called manuscripts. Now, historians pay close attention to the gap of time between the autograph and the manuscripts, the earliest copied manuscript. And why is that important? Because the greater the gap, the greater the possibility that the text was changed or embellished. It's like the old game of telephone. When a message is passed from person to person to person, it's likely to get corrupted. But if the message is written down and preserved, it's not going to change, is it? So, here's what we can do. Let's look at the manuscripts of the New Testament as compared to other ancient documents. And we could have a long list of these, but I'll just choose a couple. Uh, Has anyone ever heard of a guy named Plato? P-L-A-T-O. Plato was a well-known scholar from classical Greece, and he was the author of a famous work known as The Republic. Now, Plato wrote that work around 400 B.C., but we don't have a copy of the original autograph. And like I said, that's very common. But you know the date of the earliest copy that we have of Plato's Republic? The earliest copy dates back to A.D. 900. So now, what's the gap of time between those two documents? Any, anyone good at calendar math? It's about... 1,300 years, right? And that's a long time between the life of Plato and our earliest copy of his work. Let's look at another example. Uh, There was a Roman historian named Tacitus, and around A.D. 100, Tacitus wrote a history of the Roman Empire. It's called Annals. And we have a pretty significant time gap here as well. Our earliest copy of Annals by Tacitus dates to A.D. 1100. So now this math is a little easier. What's the time gap? It's about a thousand years between the autograph and the earliest manuscript. 
Well, let's do one more, and this time we'll look at the Gospel of John from the New Testament. John wrote his biography of Jesus around A.D. 75, and here's where things get interesting. Our earliest copy of the Gospel of John dates to A.D. 125. That's a time gap of only around 50 years, and that means it's conceivable that some of the people who knew John were still around at the time of this particular copy. 50 years is an extremely narrow gap in the world of ancient history. And it's not just the Gospel of John. We have entire manuscripts of the, of the whole New Testament that were copied less than 100 years after the original autographs. And this is very significant because it builds the case that the books we have today are accurate. In the case of Plato and Tacitus, scholars don't question those works. Um, there's widespread acceptance that the, these things were passed down very much as they were originally written. But the New Testament is far more trustworthy than pretty much any other ancient writings. Now, in addition to looking to that time gap, you can also compare the number of copies that we have of the different writings. That's also important to historians because the more copies you have, the more you can check those manuscripts to see if there are discrepancies. So, let's look at those same works. Uh, with Plato's Republic, there are seven copies still in existence, and that's pretty good for something that old, isn't it? Well, then let's look at Tacitus. We have 20 copies of the work of Tacitus, which is even more impressive. But then what about the New Testament? Anybody have a guess as to how many manuscripts have survived? Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> way, way smarter than first service. <laughs> yeah, more than 5,800 copies of the New Testament. And I would give you an exact number, but it's always changing because we keep finding more. You see, the truth is, the New Testament is the most attested writing from the ancient world. It's not even close. The early Christians were very serious about passing down these scriptures, and they placed a high value on accuracy. I learned something this week about the scribes who would transfer a book from one manuscript to another. And I learned that if the scribe discovered an error of just one letter, they would burn that copy and then start over. And because of their commitment to accuracy, the agreement among the existing New Testament manuscripts stands at 99.5%. So what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. What you're reading is what was originally written. And that's a very important point to make because if we can connect these books to the original apostles, we can draw some powerful conclusions. As far as we can tell, the apostles were totally convinced that the New Testament told the truth about Jesus. In fact, they were so convinced that these words were true, they would rather be killed before they denied it. Most of the original apostles were martyred. They were executed for their faith. That tells us that they really believed that Jesus wasn't just a man. He was the Son of God. He truly rose from the dead. If that wasn't true, they would have denied their story because you don't die for a lie. But we're not done yet. Some people say, okay, you got all these books that made it into the New Testament, 
But what about the ones that didn't make it? What about those false gospels and, and the books that were clearly made up? And yes, it's true. There are books like the Gospel of the Hebrews and the Gospel of Thomas. And yes, with, with some of those books, it's very obvious that they were written by imposters who had some kind of reason for, for spreading fabricated accounts about Jesus. So then the question becomes, how do we know that the books that made it into the New Testament are actually the ones that are true? Well, that's a reasonable question. It's one of the things that I wondered about several years ago. So I went back and I studied the formation of something called the New Testament canon. And the word canon is used to describe the, the collection, the group of books that made it into the final version of the New Testament. And I learned about a process that was very interesting. The early church was not random or flippant about what they would regard as Scripture. The canon of the New Testament was selected using three primary criteria. First was the authority of the apostles. In order to be included as a part of the Bible, a book had to be written by an apostle or by an eyewitness. They said if the author was not with Jesus or very, very close to the original story, we don't want it. The second requirement was consistency. The book had to be in complete agreement with what early Christians believed to be true. Now, in later years, the church got into all kinds of arguments about doctrine, but in the early stages, when the church was led by the apostles or by people who learned from the apostles, there was a lot of agreement about who Jesus was and what He taught. Finally, the third of these criteria was acceptance. Was this book widely used and widely accepted across the early church? So here's how that played out. If a book became popular in the church of Alexandria down in Egypt, but it wasn't being used up in Jerusalem or Antioch, they would say, sorry, we're only going to select the books that are common to the universal church. So, in the decades after Jesus and in the first few generations of the Christian church, there were people making decisions about what our Bible would look like. And if you are a Christian who never knew how the New Testament canon was formed, that discovery could be a little unsettling. You might say, hey, I thought the Bible came directly from God. Isn't that what 2 Timothy says? All Scripture is breathed out by God. And how could it be from God if there were imperfect humans involved in the whole process? Well, I'll admit, there's a certain mystery to this, but it's actually very consistent with how God has chosen to work throughout history. God often chooses to partner with people to do His work on earth. And if you ask me, when you look at the final product of the Bible and you consider that humans were involved, you have even more evidence that this book wasn't just some human invention. Consider this fact. The Bible was written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years. And these writers came from vastly different time periods and vastly different cultural perspectives, yet the Bible communicates one central cohesive message. It's the story of a personal, all-powerful God who created us and who loves us. It's the story of humanity choosing to rebel against God. And it's the story of a Savior who gave up his life 
so that our relationship with God could be restored and so that we could live together with Him for all of eternity. The unified message of the Bible is one of the great reasons to believe that God was involved in the whole process. Because if you get get a half a dozen people into a room, it's hard to get them to agree on anything, much less 40 different people over 1,500 years. But this is what we mean when we say that Scripture was inspired by God. It's not that He took control of the author's hand and made him write what he wanted it to say. N.T. Wright describes it this way. He said, inspiration is shorthand for the belief that by His Spirit, God guided the different writers, the very different writers and editors, so that the books they produced were the books God intended His people to have. So, I realize I've only scratched the surface here, and there are many more reasons to believe that the Bible is true, that it really is from God. Last week, Dylan mentioned a website called reasons.org, and that could be a valuable resource for you if you want to do some studying on your own. But I want to go back to my story as we wrap up here, because I want to point out a a kind of evidence for the Bible that we don't always think about. Jesus refers to this evidence uh, in the book of John, chapter 7, verse 17. And in that verse, Jesus says, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Now, that is a fascinating statement, isn't it? Jesus says, if you're not sure about who I am or what I'm saying, test me. Put your faith in me. Put your life in my hands and then see what happens. Years ago, I was at a crossroads. I was going to embrace my faith or I would reject it. I chose to embrace it. I looked at the evidence, and then I looked at the gap of things that I still wasn't sure about, and I decided to go all in. I took the leap. Now, since that time, do you think I've had regrets about basing my whole life and my whole future on the truth of the Bible and the truth that Jesus is for real? I can honestly tell you, not once have I regretted that decision. I'm not saying it's been easy. I'm not saying that my questions have all disappeared. But I am saying that I have seen confirmation again and again that the Bible has wisdom and truth that you can't find anywhere else. For one thing, the Bible just lays out a better way to live. You can test this. I've watched people make decisions based on the opinions of popular culture or based on what they think they want. And I've seen these people bring all kinds of pain into their lives and into their families. Pain that could have been avoided by following the plan that God laid out in Scripture. Now, the Bible will sometimes rub you the wrong way because it will lead you to make changes that you don't want to make. It will lead you to do things that you don't want to do. But the Bible was inspired by God. He's the one who created the universe. So, of course, it's going to tell you how life works best. Here's something that I've come to believe without a doubt. Basing your life on the teachings of Scripture leads to blessings that you would never receive otherwise. Again, I'm not saying that the Bible will lead you to a problem-free life. 
but it will lead you to a blessed life. And based on that evidence, along with other proof that I've seen along the way, I'm convinced that Scripture is the only place that I can go to for reliable information about this life and about eternal life. So, whether you believe that the Bible is true today or you still have a lot of questions and you might call yourself a skeptic, here's what I would recommend for you. Three things. First, read the Bible. Read the Bible. Some of the people who are uh, very skeptical about it haven't really read it. But I would say this for anybody. Read the Bible. In order for God's Word to take root in your life, you've got to get it into your head and into your heart. And preferably, don't just read it by yourself. Read it in community, like in a life group where you have others who encourage you along the way. My second recommendation is that you actually live it out. Uh, the book of James tells us to be doers of the Word, not just hearers of the Word. And, and that's where you find out that God's plan is best. Lastly, I would recommend that you keep wrestling. Because you're going to find passages of Scripture that are confusing, maybe even disturbing. And that's okay. Lean into that tension and dig deeper. Those times of struggle are often when God builds our faith. And like I said, I still have those times myself. I still have some of those questions that my seminary professors weren't able to answer. But at the end of the day, um, I find myself relating to the disciples of Jesus back in John chapter 6. In that chapter, Jesus was teaching about the Lord's Supper, which we just celebrated here a few minutes ago. And it's hard to imagine how shocking this teaching would have sounded to a Jewish audience the first time they heard it. Because Jesus actually told them, if you want eternal life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And for many of those disciples, this was just too much. Yeah, Jesus was just out there. And so they walked away. Look at what it says in John chapter 6. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, and I love this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know what? I'm with Peter. Are there times that I still wrestle with the Bible? Sure. But I've looked across the world. I've looked at the major belief systems out there. I've looked at the worldview that says you don't have to believe in anything. And the reality is everybody is putting their faith in some kind of worldview, even if it's the belief that you don't have to believe anything. But for me, I've never found anything that resonates with truth like what I've found in the Bible. And I've never found anyone who speaks to my soul the way Jesus does. I've seen the evidence. I've made my decision. I've put my trust in God's Word. I've put my faith in Jesus. And if you haven't done that already, I sincerely hope and I pray that you'll do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not left us just wandering in the darkness. You have revealed yourself to us through your word so that we can know you, 
so that we can have a relationship with you, our creator, who is so far above and beyond us. We thank you for that. We thank you for loving us. And we thank you most of all for Jesus, who makes it possible for us to be forgiven, to be saved from the punishment of eternal death, and to have the hope of an abundant life here, a blessed life here, but eternal life with you in heaven. Lord, for those that are still wrestling and still struggling, um, I pray that uh, you will guide each one by your Spirit so that they can one day, uh, maybe today, take that leap and find that confidence in you and in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.